Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... Support for the Children's Book Podcast comes from the Little Feminist Book Club. Little Feminist wants to help you diversify your child's bookshelf. Each box is built around one to two books of the month that feature strong female characters and or people of color. Their books are selected by a team of teachers, librarians, and parents. I recently received a Little Feminist Book Club box and my three-year-old and eight-year-old loved it. There were activities, a book to read, stickers, conversation pieces, discussion points. It was wonderful. Go to littlefeminist.com and use the coupon code WINNER or click on the link at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast to get started with your Little Feminist Book Club box today. Support also comes from Storyteller Academy. Learn the art of storytelling from published authors, illustrators, and editors at Storyteller Academy. Sign up today at StorytellerAcademy.com. And we are both, um, we're colleagues and soldiers in this um, wonderful endeavor. Today's guest made a promise to herself early on that she would seek out and include the best information she could possibly provide, and her newest book is no exception. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 476. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. Today I'm joined by Martha Brokenbro, author of Unprecedented, a biography of Donald Trump. Martha approached her research with a mindset of presenting information fairly, and with a lens of looking for patterns in actions and what those patterns tell us about the subject matter. It won't surprise you that what the patterns pointed to was winning, at all costs, sometimes by redefining the game or resubstanting the win, and all too often claiming win to the detriment of already historically marginalized people. Some of the information Martha presents may make you or your readers uncomfortable. To that, Martha reminds us that uncomfortable is different from unfair. Please welcome my guest, Martha Brokenbro, author of Unprecedented, a biography of Donald Trump. Hey everyone, I'm Martha Brokenbro. My pronouns are she and her, and I am a writer of books for children and young adults. I also teach at Vermont College of Fine Arts, and um, I love doing that. My latest book that's out is Unprecedented, a biography of Donald Trump. Well, welcome. And uh, you, you wrote a biography of Trump for youth. 
for high schoolers. And I, I, I just to, to uh, share right away, I had the esteemed privilege of listening to it on audiobook, simultaneously releasing with, with print out in the world this week. Congratulations on the release, Martha. Thank you so much. I am incredibly glad that it's here. It's done. No more, no more work. <laughs> Are you not already working on the sequel? Still oh. unprecedented? <laughs> it's, it's unprecedented. Uh, you know, I, there, there very well could be a sequel to this book. And when my editor and I were talking about, well, how does it end? She said to me, just end it to be continued. That's going to be fine. Um, and so who knows? There could be a sequel. I, I um, don't know quite what shape that would take. That's one of the hard things about writing a book that is happening as you're writing it. Happening as you're writing it. You have done, I mean, this was a book that I could really feel the amount of research you did in it because it was all over the place because you your subject is on Twitter. <laughs> um, so to have not just uh, published interviews or articles or hearings or previous biographies that you're referencing, but to also have something that uh, we are we are of an age and this individual is is uh, drawn to that technology that we really ha can have a sense of whatever's going on or whatever is on the subject's mind at literally any moment of the day and so to be able to approach writing writing up to present with uh this with this guy i feel like must have been challenging but i i guess where i'm coming at this as um, as as the reader is just how in awe I am of how well you not only um, took us through uh, Donald from uh, from grandfather to father to uh, young child to uh, through the building of the Trump Empire to where we are now. Um, <laughs> can we please make that noise every single time we utter the phrase? <laughs> With with Monty Python um, trumpets, <laughs> like cut paper trumpets blowing. Um, no, but you just have done a really wonderful job, not only of telling that story, but of building patterns, of circling back to things, to, to seeds that were planted earlier in the story to remind that reader of, hey, remember when I dropped this note? Uh, let me put that back in context. I really, I really thought um, you did such a fine job at, and I just it blew my mind uh, knowing that you were working under the time constraint that you were working under. You did a wonderful job, Martha. Well, thank you. You know, I, I started out my career. Uh, I taught high school for a year. I taught classes in journalism and the First Amendment. Um, but I wanted to be a newspaper reporter and I started out as a newspaper reporter. I was the editor of my college paper and there is nothing like that for teaching a person how to find and seek information, how to verify and how to work quickly. And so I definitely had to do that because I was writing for young readers. There's lots of books written about Trump for adults. And so, you know, why is my book different? And, you know, what's the approach for young readers? Well, because I was writing for young readers, I had to make sure it was vigorously researched. You know, just like you wouldn't feed kids junk, you wouldn't give them tainted food. 
you wouldn't give them bad information. And that is one of my absolute values as a writer for young people. It's the best information that I can possibly provide. Um, Twitter, you mentioned that. And it's interesting, you know, I giggle about it. Oh, you know, this social media, this technology. Twitter is changing and affecting the world. Um, I'll try to say this as, with as much circumspection as possible, but mm. <laughs> a friend of mine has a close relative who works in the Trump administration. And so um, I can say with certainty that foreign leaders, allies, and enemies alike watch what Trump tweets and it has an effect on them. And so I thought it was very important to read all 30,000 plus of his tweets and to establish some patterns with those and get an understanding because yes, it's new technology, but that doesn't mean that it is not part of history. It very much is. So, you know, let me just give an overview of what I did and what I read and what I studied to put into this book Um, because I think, Oh yeah, go ahead. I was just going to jump in to say that especially with Twitter, these were not tweets that were hidden from you either. These are still, they remain as public tweets. Yes. And I say this as a librarian who's, who talks about if you're not happy with, you know, for some people uh, getting a job um, sometimes means that your employer is going to look at your social media history, uh, your presence and history and, um, you may feel like you're a different person now than you were then, but that history is there. And I'm very aware of tools that you can use to erase that history, which I think in some circumstances could be a responsible thing for some folks to do. Um, but I also think from reading your book that it makes total sense to me that, um, that our president, um, in, in the character that, that he is and, and who he has uh, developed himself to be would not ever be a person to delete those tweets. No, he does not have regrets. Um, that's part of his personality. If he's gone bankrupt, he won't say he's gone bankrupt. He'll say he's used the laws of the nation to his advantage. Whoa, say that um, again? Used the laws? He, he's used the laws, laws of the nation to his advantage. Wow. Brilliantly, that's I a... think is, is, the, is the quote, or, or very close to it. Mm. Um, he does not admit. He, he actually says he's never gone bankrupt, which is not true. Um, and, you know, what he's, he's saying, well, you know, it's never been a personal bankruptcy. And, okay, fine. It's been Chapter 11. He didn't lose any of his luxury dwellings. Um, but there was a reason for that, and it was not, you know... <laughs> um, it was not because he's a genius. I mean, he, it's because he's brazen and um, he has gotten away with things. And so, you know, for the people who really like Trump and who want to create an America um, with that point of view, that the world is ours to dominate, that we can extract from it what we want and what we need, um, that power is its own right um, and, and, you know, you don't apologize for things. Um, and if someone criticizes you, you go on the attack. And that's very much um, Trump. If I were to sum him up, what does he want? And this is something that biographers do. You know, who is who is this person and what drives them? Alexander Hamilton 
um, when he when he wrote a letter when he was a young man to a girl who had dumped him, he said, I'm going to be okay because my motto is all for love. And I thought about that letter. And mm-hmm. as I looked at his life, I thought, okay, so, you know, was love motivating this? And I'm like, indeed it was. You know, here's love of country. Here's him motivated by wanting to be lovable. Here's him, you know, it, very much all for love was his motto. And he lived by that. Trump wants to win. There's that poem that he wrote when he was a little boy. I love to hear the crowd give cheers so loud and noisy in my ears. He was writing about baseball and and um, the how much he didn't like to lose. Trump wants to win. That's it. That's what motivates him. Whatever he needs to do to win, he will do. If the laws are in his way, he will dodge them. He will break them. He will call them stupid. Um, if the norms of civility prevent something, he will crush those norms. Trump wants to win. If he hasn't won, he will call the other person a loser. If he's gone bankrupt, he'll call that winning by a different definition. Trump wants to win. He has defined success for himself and he lives by that definition. Yes. I sidetracked you as you were about to get into all of this research that you did. I feel our conversation pulling in a slightly different direction. So before we go there, I want to hear about the, the myriad of resources that you consulted to research. Thank you. And I did want to talk about that because Trump has made so much noise about fake news. And so... What I wanted to demonstrate is that, um, you know, that's Trump. Fake news does not actually apply in quite the way (laughs) he thinks. And he has a very specific reason for saying that. He wants to destroy any sense of objective reality. Once he's done that, people are much easier to control. So in order to responsibly research this book, I read every single major Trump biology or biography that's out there. I read books that Trump um, produced in partnership with ghostwriters. I read books written by Trump's allies. I looked at um, magazine and newspaper archives, so coverage of Trump throughout his career. I found his high school yearbook. I found his graduation program. Um, I looked at FBI, the FBI investigation of him and his father for discriminatory housing practices after the 1968 Fair Housing Act. I read um, long, long transcripts of court cases. Um, I read the Steele dossier, which coincidentally, remember I was talking about that first year out of college when I was a high school teacher, I taught journalism. One of my journalism students, Ken Bensiger, the author of Red Card, a book on corruption in the soccer organization FIFA, Ken Bensiger was the one, or one of the ones, who on BuzzFeed released the Steele dossier. What Isn't a connection. Funny? Wow. I know. The world is a small place sometimes. Huh. And so um, Ken and I have reconnected a bit over that. Um, anyway, so Matthew, everything that I could find, I looked at old videos. I found a video from 1980 where an interviewer asked Trump, well, what would you do if you ran out of money? And he said, somewhat jokingly, but we know Trump never jokes. He said, oh, if I ran out of money, I'd probably run for president. Because, again, through that filter of 
I always want to win. Running right. out of money wouldn't be losing. It would be the next thing to get past in order to, to win something to, to overcome, to win. Yep. And if, if you're not, you know, if you don't succeed in business, well, you can certainly have power through politics and it's so, pretty interesting. That So, so uh, as I'm trying to wrap my brain around what this looks like to start something like this, I hear you say that you, for all of these uh, biographies and works about uh, Trump throughout his life, uh, there hasn't been one written for uh, young adults yet. Uh, so I understand the need to do so, but can I ask you a little bit about about how? I, I hear all the research that you've done, but do you do you start with a seed? Was there like a, 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 a document, a thought, a theory that sort of drove you looking? I can picture like piles of papers and notes and everything. And I can picture that like crazy, messy part of the research process, but I can't quite picture the, the start of it all. So the start of it all was the day after election day, 2016. I didn't think Trump was going to win. I hoped he didn't. I had been dismayed by what I saw on the campaign trail. I didn't like the racism he exhibited when he said a judge whose ancestors were Mexican couldn't be fair um, in in the Trump University fraud case. Um, I didn't like the religious bigotry that he exhibited when he um, attacked the parents of the soldier, the Gold Star soldier killed. Um, He suggested that the mother hadn't spoken because her religion wouldn't let her. I didn't like the misogyny. I didn't like the lies. Did you know that only 5% of what he said, um, according to PolitiFact, a a Pulitzer Prize winning source, only 5% of what he said as a candidate was true. 5%? was true. Did did PolitiFact by any chance, have they done that on other candidates before does it of course they have is it so do you do you have ready in your brain what some of the other numbers Uh, were for other people not ready in my brain but i do know that of all of the candidates running for president hillary clinton was the most truthful the one he called crooked hillary was the most truthful i remember reading in your book that some other source i apologize to step on your words but you uh, to read in whatever source you referenced uh actually said that she was one of hillary clinton was one of the most qualified candidates for president in history. Um, This is true. There was a chart that I saw and it looked at the various qualifications a person could have, you know, everything from, you know, public office and which public office held and how long and, Mm. you know, what their background was. And, you know, you compare her to most other candidates and she's really done quite a lot. Trump is, I think, the only one who'd never held public office never served in the military. Um, And so he came into office on the qualifications of his candidate as a businessman. Um, And anyway, so we were talking about the genesis of the book. And so I didn't like what I had seen on the campaign trail. And I particularly didn't like the dishonesty. Um, I, you know, it's, it's a personal value of mine and I don't buy into the line that every politician is dishonest. I think that everybody does say things that are untrue for a variety of reasons. You misheard something, you, you didn't speak precisely. Um, but actively going out and lying is totally different. Trump is an active liar. 
In his best-selling autobiography, The Art of the Deal, Trump claimed to have Swedish ancestry. That's a lie. He's German. His, his, his ancestry is German. His mother was English. His father um, was the son of two German immigrants. Why did Trump say he was Swedish? Well, following World War II, there was quite a bit, and World War I and World War II, there was quite a bit of anti-German bias. And so Trump just didn't want to experience that bias, and so he lied. Um, and I didn't like that. Um, especially, you know, what he should have done is say, hey, being biased against people because of their heritage is wrong. Um, instead of that, he was biased against people because of their heritage and he lied about his own. Mm. So anyway, I was sad when Trump won. And then I started thinking about what children's books would be written about him. And typically, books written about presidents for young readers are positive. They're glowing. It's like, look at what this person is. Look at what this person said. And, and, and like, I'm sure you can think of lots of, of things that were said about George Washington that simply aren't true. Um, that I cannot tell a lie. I did chop down the cherry tree. Not true. Um, totally made up. Um, but we've all internalized that stuff. And honestly, Matthew, it made me sick to think of what someone might tell children about Trump, that he's a great businessman, that, yeah. you know, he represented bold new ideas, that he wanted to make America great again. Um, you can hear it, can't you? Oh, you can definitely. hear how they would. Or maybe perhaps I can hear what what people on the other side what greatness they see in him that I just don't see. But in this case, we have to remember that we're going back to facts. Well, there's a lot of people who like Trump, including people I love very much. Yeah. And they have their reasons for it. Um, and I can't really think of many good ones with my most compassionate heart. I try to think of the people who support Trump are people who feel marginalized okay. and people who feel like they don't matter and that Trump made them feel like they would matter again. And I am so sorry that anyone feels as though they don't matter. Um, I, <laughs> that doesn't um, make any of the justifications for a Trump presidency, in my view, knowing what I know about him, responsible. Because... What I found out through the course of my research made him seem far, far worse and far more dangerous than he seemed when I woke up the day after he was elected. Now, I pitched the book to my editor, Jean Fywell. She's She and I at that point had done three books together, Finding Bigfoot um, and Shark Week, which were both companions to the Discovery Channel show and, and books where I got to flex some, some, my interest in science and biology. And then Alexander Hamilton, Revolutionary, where I got to um, display my interest in this country and its values and the principles on which it was founded. Um, I pitched the Trump book to her and she told my agent, she says, I just don't have the stomach for it. And so that was disappointing because, uh, you know, I like to work. My other editor is Arthur Levine. He's edited all my fiction. And so it's been an incredible privilege for me to do all these books with just two people, two really brilliant, wonderful editors. I couldn't let the idea go. Um, I kept on researching. I kept on reading. And I thought, maybe there's another editor who I'll write this book for. Um, I also wasn't totally sure right after the election, what the book would be like, because he hadn't been president yet, and maybe he would change. He didn't. 
um, from his inauguration on, you know, we started the inauguration with the fib that his crowd was the largest crowd. ever yeah. gathered. Uh, and that just wasn't true. And it was a silly lie to make. It was silly and vain. Um, anyway, I kept at it. And in January of this year, um, around exactly the anniversary of Trump's first year in office, I said to my agent, let's just try Jean one more time. And he did. And she bought it. And that's a really unusual thing. Usually when an editor says no, it means no. Um, but enough time had passed that um, her stomach grew the capacity. Um, and then I was in New York in early February and she showed me the production schedule and I was very surprised to see that the book would be due in August. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> January to August. <laughs> <laughs> and so what it meant was that I had to take all of the research that I had done to that point and all the research that I knew I would have to do and find some way to organize it. And so what I did, and this is for all you writers out there and all you teachers who are trying to teach your kids how to get things organized, I made a spreadsheet. I made a chronological spreadsheet of what I knew and what my source for the information was. And that became my organizational tool. I had thousands and thousands of facts. There were more than 1,400 footnotes in the book. And so I had to keep track of those somehow. And so I did using this big spreadsheet. And then my job was to just tell the story. So I don't know um, if you've ever chatted with Deborah Heiligman. I think she's one of our most extraordinary writers of nonfiction. And I was talking to her about, Deb, you know, how do you, how do you write these books that read so well? And how do you keep track of all the information? And she said, I do it without notes. And so I thought, all right, I'm just going to write this stuff from my memory. And then I went back, you know, after I would write the day's work, then I would go back and put the footnotes in. Um, but that was kind of how I did it. If it was important enough to stick in my memory, then it was important enough to surface on the page. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It was storytelling. It, I mean, you said find the story, just tell the story. That's what you're doing. That's what I was trying to do. And it was, as you know, um, it is an incredibly dense and complicated story. Yes. Um, so, it, it, you know, I just wrote bit by bit. I wrote every day, seven days a week. Um, when I was teaching in Vermont for the residency of my graduate students, every single spare minute I was working, working, working. Um, and that was just what it demanded. And that was what I was willing to do for these young readers. It's not that I want them to dislike Trump. I want them to know the truth so that those the, the nine million of them who will be eligible to vote in 2020 can vote with the best information and the clearest understanding yes, yes. they have. The, um, they will be. Oh my goodness. Um, the, the, I, I wonder if, if there were moments in the writing process that you experienced fatigue from writing and what, how you got through that, or if this maybe was just sort of a special project that you just felt compelled to continue writing through to the end did you have a moment of of struggle to get back in front of the computer to write again there were a lot of moments of struggle yeah. um and i am 
fortunate to have many, many friends in this industry, people who I talked with about the book and, and the challenges, people who were willing to read the pages as they spewed out. Um, you know, I had one friend reading every night. I would send her what I had done that day, and then she would say, oh, it's wonderful. And, and it wasn't all wonderful, but it was the encouragement that I needed. Um, I also try to cultivate healthy habits. Um, you know, I try to get to the gym. I try to spend, you know, time with my family, loving my husband and my children, um, taking care of my aging dogs. I mean, you know, there's a whole balance of things. And I think all of that's necessary because, um, you can't do only one thing and continue to, um, approach it with energy and love. And I did, it hasn't sold yet. Um, but I did write a chapter book series. It was the first time I had tried that form. And it's about a cat named Frank, um, who has to endure a lot. And so Frank was sort of my avatar and it was, it was fun you know, to translate, <laughs> translate suffering into very, very short and funny fiction. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just, I'm like, I, I'm going to give this my all. Cause here's the thing, Matthew. There are people who are harmed by the president's policies, his attitudes, and his actions. Eleven Jewish people are dead because of rising anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism has gone up measurably since he became president, according to the Anti-Defamation League. It's something like 57% rise in hate crimes against Jewish people. Um, we've got Heather Heyer killed in Charlottesville, um, at the white supremacist rally, white supremacists, um, the daily stormer or daily storm, I think, um, it was the first publication to endorse Trump. Hmm. The values of Nazis are Trump's values. Um, it's an ugly and awful thing to say. It is also fact. Um, and people denying it does not make it untrue. Um, we've got, more than 10,000 children who've been separated um, and, and uh, who are, who are um, being held in tent cities. We still have some children who are separated from their families. Um, I think it's probably just down to a few hundred now, but at one point there was thousands of children and no plans to reunite them. And so how dare I feel tired when other people are, uh, you know, their lives are at risk. Um, this work was incredibly important to me to do. And the more I found out about Trump, the more I found out about the criminals he associates with, about the laws that he's broken, about his disdain for working people and his willingness to rip them off repeatedly, um, the more urgently I felt this book needed to be written. And I know it's going to make a lot of people angry. And a lot of people are going to say, it's unfair. I am certain that history will bear it out every last word. And that um, I would regret deeply not doing everything I could to tell the truth about this dark, dark chapter in American history. Support for the Children's Book Podcast also comes from the Highlights Foundation. 
hosting intimate and inspiring workshops for children's authors and illustrators. Thinking about writing for children? Or have you always wanted to write a children's book but aren't quite sure how it works? Join us March 21st to 24th, 2019 for Everything You Need to Know About Children's Publishing, a Crash Course, and learn everything there is to know about the children's publishing world, including how the publishing process works, how to know when you're ready to submit a manuscript, how to find which publishers to submit to, how contracts work, the editorial and marketing process, and a whole lot more. And you'll hear from a number of people in the industry who can help to understand the process. Faculty includes Harold Underdown, Leah Henderson, Rachel Werner, Allison Green Myers, Lindsay Barrett George, and me. Yep, I'll be there too. Registration is now open. Visit highlightsfoundation.org. And from Viz Media. Viz is excited to announce that Pokemon Adventures, the most popular and longest-running Pokemon comic, is now available digitally. Visit viz.com Pokemon to read a free preview of the beloved All Ages series. That's viz.com Pokemon. I have two thoughts that I've been holding holding right at the front of my head about this. And one, I think I did express to you before we were recording, which is just that as I was listening, knowing in your introduction that you were talking about setting out to look for patterns in history through Trump's life and his family's life. uh, And also that you were setting out to tell a fair story. This isn't... As I read it, as I listened to it, I did not hear it as uh, a, a a journalist trying to run someone's life through the mud. What it felt to me, and this is where I want to come back to the way you respect your readers, Martha, is that what it felt to me very much was like you were saying, I'm going to give you the facts and I need you to decide what side you want to take on this, or maybe not even what side, but just how you want to interpret this. It was never, I'm going to tell you this thing and then say, see, isn't this bad? See, isn't this awful? <laughs> um, and why that's on my mind, too, is because I felt like, as I said to you, I, I wonder how someone from the other side, a Trump supporter, would read this and and feel about it because it is complex and because there are qualities that other people do see in him that they are attracted to that n- notion of the strength of winning at all cost the notion of someone who b- broke uniformity by being as you said coming out of sort of nowhere and and landing the position of president of the United States. There are things that people see themselves in that I don't, but I had it at the forefront of my mind the entire time I read that I wonder if I'm hearing this and thinking one thing because I have that experience and filter that I'm going to do that. And I wonder if someone else that would experience and read this book might think, yeah, but that's good that he's like that. And yeah, yeah, he did say that thing, but it's just, I mean, come on, they're just words. And I realized that that's also part of the story that 
I've been being told by one side of the media and I'm, I'm laughing because I feel uncomfortable. It's not that one side is, uh, it's not, it's not that the interpretation of the, uh, of the situation is right or wrong. I'm certainly not trying to offend people that support him, but I, I do really value this stance you took of, I'll present you the facts. I did a lot of research. I'll present you the facts and you decide for yourself in those, what did you say? Like 1400 footnotes. Um, yeah. Well, so, Okay. I grew up in a really conservative family, Matthew. And so I definitely understand and respect that point of view. To me, this is not a right wing versus left wing story. Yeah. Um, there are opposing values at work. And I do have certain values of my own that not everybody agrees with. I believe that all human beings are of equal value and of equal worth. Um, if you are transgender, if you are Native American, if you are black, if you are a woman, I believe you are every bit as valuable as the people who tend to have more power in this society. Mm. I mean, white, heterosexual men. Um, and I know that's, to me, that sounds like, duh, obviously, of course, it is not a universal American value. A, exactly. At all. That's what I'm going through as I'm reading this. I am a 37-year-old man, Martha, and I am learning. You are teaching me. Continue. Preach on. Sorry. Well, and so it's not. And um, and for me, I've gotten I'm, – I'm older than you. I'm 48, and so I'm tired. I'm not going to debate it. I'm not going to engage in a debate with people. If there's someone who thinks um, I don't – you know, that – you know, transgender people don't belong in the military. I'm just going to say right out that's bigoted and it's ignorant. And let me tell you, here's another thing I learned while writing this book. 7% of the American population serves in the military. 11% of the trans population serves. So not only um, do trans people, there are plenty of them in the military who were harmed by Trump's policy that he just announced on Twitter the same day that his campaign manager's apartment was raided. Um, hmm. Not only are there transgender people and lives that are harmed by that ill-considered and unjust policy, if you define service in the military as noble and brave, guess what? Trans people are one and a half times as brave as the rest of us per population. We should be embracing those people for their courage and not discriminating in cruel and undignified ways. And so for me, sorry, it's not a debate. If you have this opinion, then you're a bigot. And yeah, those are hard words. Um, and maybe that sounds ugly and unfair. It's also a fact. Um, and you can look at the science of this fact. People who identify as transgender, their brain structure looks like the structure of the gender they feel is their true one. That's science. I'm sorry if it makes people feel uncomfortable. Um, for me, it's enough for someone to say, this is who I am, and I, I accept you for who you are and all of your identity elements. And that's a non-negotiable value for me. And frankly, I think that's the American intention where uh, you know, we've got the all men are created equal. And of, of course, that's a very sexist thing. And it was followed up shortly thereafter by um, racist language against Native Americans. However, 
the spirit of it. Imagine, what if all people were equal? What if we all deserved equal access to resources? What if we all deserved equal opportunities? Um, so that's, that's one crazy radical notion that I subscribe to firmly. Um, and so, you know, when there's people who make comments um, about black culture or other things in disparaging ways or black on black violence, I just, oh, it makes my skin crawl. Um, that wasn't really a very big part of the book, though, was it? Um, it's, you know, it's just not, I mean, but that's who I am personally. And I'm very happy to be upfront and I consider myself a role model for children in that way. And I do want to model radical acceptance of children, um, for whoever they are, because I didn't feel that growing up. Radical acceptance is my favorite term from therapy. I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, It's it's been life changing for me. It's a good one. Cause I, I mean, I didn't feel it and it hurt me. Um, But anyway, so, but like getting at, uh, adults have long had a hard time telling the kids about the truth. Yeah. Why, do, why do kids think babies come from storks? That's ridiculous. Um, they don't. And, you know, it doesn't help children not to understand how their bodies work. And so politics, money, power, these are other areas where adults um, deliver children polite truths. And we say we're doing it for the sake of the kids. That's not true. We're doing it because it makes us uncomfortable and we're not brave enough to embrace that discomfort. Mm. And so that is a challenge that I would like to give all adults. What makes you feel uncomfortable? Why do you feel uncomfortable? And how can you be brave enough to help walk a young person through that discomfort? And so this book, Unprecedented, is deeply uncomfortable. The president of the United States is a habitual liar. He's racist. He is a below average businessman. Um, He has harmful attitudes toward women and people of color. These are uncomfortable things to say to kids. These are all facts. These are all verifiable facts. It is not unfair to say what is true. It is uncomfortable. That's very different from being unfair. And that's why I focus so hard to return to patterns. That's why I focus so hard on patterns. It's one thing if someone messes up once or twice, has a bad day. It's another thing if there is a lifetime of this behavior that's been documented. And for us to say, well, but there's, you know, very fine things on both sides or whatever. That's nonsense. It's, we do that in order to make ourselves and other people comfortable. And I don't think our comfort is more important than the truth. Never, never more important than the truth. Okay, and... sometimes, Matthew. Like, let's say you get a really ugly sweater for Christmas. Um, okay, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Okay, it's allowed. But so, what if it's so ugly that it turns around and becomes... Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) And that is entirely possible. Um, I don't think that there's any sort of way, though, that um, deception and and criminal links and uh, and and other such things can ever become good. And some people have said, oh, you know, maybe he's the thing we need to really shake things up. Um, That is like saying maybe we needed to get cancer to get us to finally hit the treadmill. And I do think Trump is cancer. And I was going to tell you that I grew up in a medical family. My dad was a doctor. And 
one time, um, a colleague of his, his wife found a lump in her breast. And she told her husband, they got it biopsied. He took a look at the cells and he turned and showed the slide to his colleague, another pathologist, and said, what do you think that is? And the pathologist said, it's a, it's a very bad cancer. Who's the patient? And the man said, well, it's my wife. Here's the thing. They knew. She knew that lump was no good. He knew what it was. He looked at those cells and he still needed someone else to tell him, yes, it is that thing you fear. Mm. Trump is that thing we fear. Yes, he is cancer. Let's not pretend that it's not. Let's not look at it as the damage to the body politic that cancer is to the body. And I'm sorry, but if you have cancerous attitudes toward the poor, toward people of color, toward immigrants, toward refugees, people suffering from war that they did not ask for, then those attitudes are cancer too. And they need to be excised for the good of all of us. We have so much more in this conversation, Martha, and I am grateful to you not only for this work you've done to bring this book to us, but also because I, I see you. I see you, Martha. I see you, Martha Broken Bro. I see you. And I see, <laughs> I see you in schools and what this will be like. And so I know us putting a cap on this conversation just gives that space to help get you out in front of those children to be a voice of truth safety of seeing them so i want to say first thank you for your time to talk to me to write this story to speak your truth and to speak that love and that um urgency to to let truth out but it also feels like to um to help uh empower and also protect and inform our most precious assets. We do this for love. We do. We do this for love. And, uh, you know, I love those kids that you work with. Um, I love you for what you do, your family. Um, and let us all keep working together and keep having these conversations. Yes. On that note, I'm going to uh, ask you that question that I close with so that I... I can fully see us back there in that library uh, with your words for them. And I'll say it this way, Martha, I will see a library full of children tomorrow morning, as will many, many people listening to this, children of all ages. Is there a message that we can bring to them from you? You are perfect, just as you are. The world is lucky to have you. And I am sending you lots of love. This is Darshna Kiani, children's author and book blogger. Want to find out the latest South Asian books and children's literature? Check out www.flowering-minds.com forward slash South Asian Kidlet. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 400 episodes at matthewcwinner.com 
forward slash podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and do not reflect ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out with the show? Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. Before we leave, I want to give a shout out to all of my patrons, those folks who are supporting the podcast and keeping the lights on care of our Patreon page. Thank you, Jenny, Sue, Amy, Sarah, Kate, Lisa, Darshna, Marianne, Jarrett, Anitra, Mike, Lynn, Link, Corina, Cynthia, Elaine, Doug, Judy, Amanda, Ruth, Laura, Teresa, and others who are coming with me on this journey. You're welcome to come with us, too. Just visit patreon.com slash Matthew C. Winner and pick the support tier that's right for you. Teamwork makes the dream work, and each of you are helping to provide the tools necessary to make this podcast even greater. Thank you. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.